In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Can you hear me? What if I turn it on? Who knew? My name is Father Matt. I'm one of the co-rectors here at the table. Welcome on this glorious morning. We try to keep our sermons under 20 minutes, and Spencer only preached 12 last week. It's here for Spencer, right? I might reclaim some of his time. Living the Politics of Jesus in a Partisan America is the sermon series we're doing right now on the Sermon of the Mount, and we live in a contentious, divided time, Christians. Many of us Christians are either baptizing our politics nationally, or we're sick and tired of the whole thing. We're advocating here at the table and contending that Jesus didn't come to offer us a spiritual life, divorced or detached from the world, but rather he gave us, he came to give us, he's giving us today a new way to be human in the world. That's what politics means. Politics is how we order society based on what's real. And so Jesus stands definitively in the middle of history and makes claims about where we've come from and where we're going. He makes claims about how we relate to each other, what justice looks like, what the good life looks like what we do with our money, what makes for peace, etc., etc. And the Sermon on the Mount, then, is Jesus' political manifesto of the kingdom of God. Here's how to arrange society under my authority. Today we're primarily focusing on Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Buckle up. Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, which is the Torah, and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you, unless your righteousness is greater than the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus doing here? What does he mean that he fulfills the law? If he doesn't come to abolish the law, does that mean we have to follow the 613 commands from the Old Testament? And how is our righteousness supposed to exceed that of the Pharisees and the legal scribes and the scholars? Is Jesus trying to make this harder for us? Next week, Ben's going to preach about murder, because Jesus uses an illustration, and adultery, and divorce, and oath-taking. And then the week after that, Mallory's going to preach on retaliation and violence, what we do with our enemies, and love. But Jesus seems, in these passages... To take simple commands, do not murder, you've heard it said, and make it even harder. You can't even hate people. (laughs) No matter, you're right, you're not slicing their throats, but I don't even want you to hate people. How is this good news? Slow your roll, Jesus. I'm still trying to wake up and actually want my kids to sit on my lap. Like, I'm still trying not to be selfish a little bit. With people I love. And you, you're over here telling me I can't call people idiots. But how will the idiots know they're idiots? Unless I tell them. Does anyone here actually want the Christian life to be harder? Well, I have good news for you, friends. Today we declare that Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. 
He holds all the scriptures together in his life and teaching and makes sense of it all. And he doesn't make following God harder, but he reorients our focus towards what it was all supposed to be about. Loving justice for the sake of others. Particularly the powerless and the penniless and the spiritually destitute. Let's receive the word of God, Jesus, and his love that holds everything together today. We're using two books, What If Jesus Was Serious and Scandalous Witness. My buddy Mike has a podcast. He's talking about the Sermon on the Mount right now, and he really helped me understand this text today. just want to give a shout out to Mike. Verse 17, don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. I say to you very seriously, as long as heaven and earth exist, neither the smallest letter nor even the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. Therefore, whoever ignores the least of these commands, pay attention to that, we're going to come back to that, and teaches others to do the same will be called lowest or least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these commands and teaches people to keep them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Um, friends, Jesus got quite a reputation in his life for being a lawbreaker. For being um, sort of, uh, he, would, he, would break, he would break Sabbath, he, would, um, he didn't hold to the purity rituals and washings and dietary requirements, eating and drinking with sinners, touching corpses and blood. He looked like he was completely abolishing the Old Testament law, and so this scandalized the people who kept the law, and it was one of the direct things that led to his death. So I just want to say this, that the Sermon on the Mount isn't this abstract teaching that falls out of heaven, divorced from any context, but Jesus is actually here speaking to things about criticisms that are leveled against him. And we'll see that the people he's speaking to make it just as important as well. So Jesus' actions, he wants to say, here in verse 17, he's not setting aside or abolishing or voiding the law, but he's fulfilling it. These are rabbinic terms, abolish and fulfill. So to fulfill is to interpret it rightly and put it into practice. It's understanding and demonstrating. Got it? That's what it means to fulfill, to fulfill it. Abolish it would be interpreting it wrongly and or not practicing it. So misunderstanding and not doing. That's really important. Because Jesus' conversation here is in a larger rabbinic conversation that was happening in Jesus' day about applying and understanding and living the law. So Jesus fulfills the law, I want to contend, in that he demonstrates in his interpretation and application that he knows how to put it all together. The Torah, the prophets, are pointing to a reality that Jesus embodies he brings it to completion and demonstrates how to make it all cohere. Or to say it another way, hat tip to our boy Brian Zond, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. Today, friends, we declare the good news that Jesus is what God has to say. In him, all the scriptures hold together in loving justice. Jesus then becomes the lens through which we understand everything God's saying. 
So this, uh, Jesus mentions this, this if, you, if you tell uh, even one of the least of these commands, if you, if you avoid it, then you'll be called least in the kingdom. Remember that? But if you keep these commands, you'll be called greatest in the kingdom. This is another rabbinical debate. This is why I'm going to need some of Spencer's time from last week. There was, there was debate, and um, this is, it wasn't debate in terms of how we think about it. This is how rabbis did theology. They would have, how about this? How about this? How about this? How about this? And then the Jewish understanding of getting at truth was uh, holding all these things in tension and seeing what shakes from it. They have way, uh, the, the ancient Jewish mind has way less problems with ambiguity and opposition than we do. But there's a, there's a light and heavy. So the Jewish rabbinical teachers would separate the commands of Scripture into light and heavy. Which were the ones we have to follow? And then which are the ones that are less important? Let me give you an example. So Exodus 1. Remember Moses? Y'all remember Moses? Been in Sunday school for 20 minutes. Moses is born at a time when all the Hebrew midwives were given a command from the king of Pharaoh to put Jewish babies to death. Remember that? In Exodus 1, then, the midwives are supposed to put babies to death, but they don't. And when they're asked by the king why they didn't, they say, well, Hebrew women don't even wait for an epidural. They just spit them little suckers out. Bingo, bingo, bongo. That's my translation. It's, the Hebrew is complex there, so I broke it down. You see the example here? They're lying, right? They're lying, but that's a lighter command than the heavy command of don't kill babies. You tracking? And so then the writer of Exodus sees this as a virtuous thing. That's an example. So that's a, that's an example of setting aside a light command for a heavy command, right? And, and this is one of a hundred or thousands of competing things where there's 613 commands, and sometimes you can't keep them all in every situation. But Jesus says, don't set aside the light commands, or you'll be called light in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't saying those midwives should have killed babies. He's saying the way of thinking about what they're doing is missing the point. He's saying the way of teaching and understanding the Torah and the prophets, where you, you separate things into light and heavy, is, is an incorrect way of thinking. It's the consciousness that needs to change. So when he says, um, you've heard it said, but I say to you, we're going to get to these in the subsequent weeks, he's not avoiding what was said, but what he's doing is he's holding, this is key to everything that's going to happen in the next three weeks, he's holding the heavy command of do not murder with the light command of don't hate in your heart, and he's saying it's one command. He's saying you can't not murder and be fine, but then go around hating people and suing them and calling them idiot and fool and Democrat or Republican. You tracking? And the way the Jewish rabbis tried to fix this or solve this is the same temptation we have today, friends. There's two temptations. There's a religious temptation of taking some religious rules and making them super important at the expense of others. That's the picking and choosing heavy and light. We have our heavy and light, don't we? Or to say it's, none of it matters. Let's just abolish it and kind of do what we want. 
But today, friends, we declare the good news that Jesus is what God has to say. He holds all the scriptures together in his life and teaching and shows us how to put it all together. And he doesn't make it harder for us. He's not trying to make this harder. But he reorients our focus in what it's always all been about, loving justice for the sake of others. Now, this is tricky, and I'm going to try to do this fast, but we need a new way of thinking, not just new information and an old way of thinking. A new consciousness, not just new content and the old consciousness. Uh, take, I'm going to use an example in physics. And my understanding about physics is uh, basically my understanding about giving birth to children, so take it for what it's worth. When I was a kid, you guys remember your science books when you learned about an atom? You saw the nucleus, and the electron, and the proton, and the neutron. Remember that? And, it, and there's that atomic symbol from the 1950s, you know? That's pretty, you can all picture that, right? Well, um, I was taught that the atom is the building block of reality. The particles make up everything else. This is Newtonian physics. And a person named J.J. Thompson got the Nobel Prize for showing that an electron is a particle. But his son also won a Nobel Prize. He won the Nobel Prize for showing that this electron that's a particle is also a wave. <laughs> Thanks a lot, son. So what we know now is that electrons aren't quite particles, and they're not quite waves. Say it another way. If you look at an electron at one point, it can look like a particle, but then if you don't look at it, it behaves like a wave. You track it with me? So we don't know what it is. We actually don't know what it is. But the old way of putting it together, building blocks, doesn't work. That's not a good picture of reality. Or just jumping into the wave, it's all a wave, that doesn't work either. Let me show you why this is important, and it's important for you like right here physically. Uh, I want you to think about this. You're made up of 7 billion, billion, billion atoms. You. That's 7 with 27 zeros. That's how many atoms make up your, your body. Some of us may be 8 billion, billion. And there are 7.3 billion people on the planet. So track with me this math. 7.3 billion on the planet. Each one is made up of 7 billion, billion, billion atoms. And if you took those 7.3 million people and took out all the empty space in each of their 7 billion, billion, billion atoms, all the atoms from all the people in the whole world would fit into a sugar cube. Which you've heard before that we're 99.999999% empty space. That gives you a picture of how much empty space you really are. <laughs> now, why is this extended analogy that I'm going to hear about at staff meeting tomorrow for having my sermon be too long? Why is this important? Because it's a metaphor, it's an illustration, if you will, about how breaking down the law into bits and parts, 613 bits and parts, if you break it down into its parts, it no longer holds together. If you break Jeff Pitts down into his parts, he fits on into the, uh, the point of a needle point. Do you know Jeff Pitts? 
I can barely get to know Jeff Pitts as it is. This pandemic is killing us, right, Jeff? That You would never say, I know Jeff Pitts, because I've got his atoms that fit on a pinhead. So we can't treat the Old Testament law like that, friends. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Maybe I'm only the one getting this, but I, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> so Jesus says, you're thinking about the law wrong. Don't break it down into bits and parts, heavy and light. Right? Also, don't treat it like a wave, like it doesn't matter. That was there yesterday. It's, it's gone. Let's abolish it. It moves around. And now I'm here to tell you where we're at now. So he's saying it's not a particle, it's not a wave. It's all these bits are, as a whole, person, you, me, we're energy and relationship. It's the space between the particles that make this. This solid thing is, is particles in relationship to each other, and that space in between is the substance. Friends, I want to contend that Jesus is that space in between. He holds all these bits together and makes, makes them make sense. So we don't look at a clump of uh, matter on a pinhead and go, I think his name is Jeff Pitts. No, he sits here and we see him and we know him. But if we break it down or abolish it, we don't know Jeff. We don't know God. We don't know Jesus. Today, friends, we declare the good news that Jesus is what God has to say. He holds all these bits together so we can see the relationship so we know, we can know what God, who God is. We can know who Jeff Pitts is. And Jesus reveals a God who's all about loving justice for the sake of others. All right, so Jesus is what God has to say. He holds it all together. The second point is this. Jesus speaks of a faith in God that's actually good news. <laughs> it's actually good news for those who live under the thumb of oppression, abuse, and destitution. He doesn't make re their religion harder. He says religion without love and justice is spiritual abuse. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than the legal experts and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So righteousness for Pharisees and legal experts, when they use that word, again, this is a technical word. Like pro-life is a technical word in our country. It has a whole wealth of meaning underneath of it. So you can't just talk of, like, like you can't, if you hear somebody say pro-life, you don't assume they're talking about caring for their animal. Even though that would be pro-life. Are you tracking with me? It has another meaning underneath of it. Righteousness has that meaning underneath of it. And so righteousness for fairies and legal experts was about keeping heavy commands while justifying things like hating people in their heart and taking people to court and suing them. So Spencer's going to talk about this in a few weeks, and I'm going to skip it. But the three things that Pharisees and legal experts, many of them, emphasized was fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And I, that's Matthew 6. I won't, but this is why Jesus talks about those things. But here's what I want to say for today. The people who were powerful and wealthy and well-connected, who had status and power and money, made a big deal about the spiritual piety that separated them from the vast majority of Israelites. 
We're told in 425 that, that large crowds are listening to Jesus speak this message. And they're crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the areas beyond the Jordan River. This means this is one of the most diverse gatherings you can imagine. But most people in Jesus' day were exceedingly poor and impoverished. Less than 5% of the population were upper class. And a lot of them were religious leaders and rulers and things like that. Most of the people Jesus is speaking to in this sermon are poor, homeless, so desperate that when the poor tithe was distributed in, in the temple, they would stampede like cattle to go get it. That's what we're told in some of the rabbinic writings. They were working poor, so they were in substance farming, like sharecroppers, after they paid Roman taxes. What it means to be a substance farmer, I'm just I'm, I'm keeping it real here because we're a bunch of middle class people. We have car alarms, so, you know, most substance Ford, uh, poor don't have car alarms. Uh, they were working poor, which means after they paid their Roman taxes, their temple taxes, and any debts that they were indebted, there was barely enough to survive for the day. And certainly not enough, not enough to do long-term estate planning. And so these farmers that Jesus is speaking to, these, subs, these subsistence uh, impover, uh, impoverished people, um, were so desperate and so oppressed by the government and religion of their day that um, there was something called debt slavery. So they would be impoverished, they couldn't pay their taxes, they couldn't pay the temple tax, and so they would have to borrow money from the temple. The temple was the bank. And uh, debt slavery was such a big thing that when the Jewish war broke out in 66 AD, the first thing that the revolutionaries did was to seize and burn the records of debt that were stored in the temple. So when Jesus then talks about the righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are, are basing their righteousness on almsgiving, fasting and prayer. Has anyone ever been like not knowing where your next meal is going to come from? Living hand to mouth, as they call it. We miss this, but fasting is a discipline of the privileged. Hungry people are always fasting. Starving people are always fasting. Only if you know where your next meal is going to go come from can you plan to fast. Almsgiving is something you can do when you have money. Jesus makes a big deal about the widow's might. Remember this? It's because... Most widows didn't have a mite to give because they were indebted and impoverished. And prayer was centered on the Jerusalem temple and the machinations there. And so people from Galilee or the Decapolis or across the Jordan River didn't have access to the real prayer you were supposed to pray as Jews. So the righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees isn't trying harder. Jesus is trying to liberate oppressed people. Do you see that? He's saying this righteousness is trash because it's oppressing you and hurting you and abusing you and keeping you locked in poverty and thinking that you're what's wrong with Israel. This was a common thing. Can anything good come from Galilee? Remember that statement? It was common teaching that people from Galilee 
were why the Romans had occupied Israel. It was those people, those sinners. So what it means that Jesus has a righteousness that's greater is that he sums up the Torah and the prophets rather than reducing them or separating them out. He's focusing more on just externals and exteriors. Did you fast today? Did you give today? Did you, did you pray today? But gets to the heart of what Scripture was intending to do. Bring loving justice out of our guts for the sake of others. He doesn't turn religion or faith into a way to create power hierarchies, to advance his own brand at the expense of other people, or to trade off inequalities and injustices, wealth and status for his benefit at others' expense. In other words, Jesus doesn't use righteousness to perpetuate and profit off of injustice. Jesus isn't making the faith harder for his listeners. He's naming the duplicity and injustices that are perpetuated in keeping the law by those with power against those who don't have power. He's exposing spiritual abuse. Oh, somebody help me. He's naming how, in his day, this beautiful faith of Judaism was turned into a for-profit, socio-political game by the ruling 5% at the expense of others. And he's saying, no more, the exploitation stops now. Today, friends, we declare the good news that Jesus is what God has to say. He holds all the scriptures together. He doesn't reduce it down into like a sugar cube. He doesn't get rid of it all, but he holds it together and we see in the interplay between the Old Testament and how Jesus and his life and teaching fulfills it that it's always, always been about loving justice on God's behalf for us and then our on our behalf for each other. He's not trying to make this harder. He's trying to reorient and center us in what it's always been about. So what does this mean for us today? Well, our sermon title is Living the Politics of Jesus in a Partisan America. And in our, in our world, uh, Christianity doesn't maybe have the power that it did in Jesus' day in, for, for, for Jews. We don't have a building where the bank and Capitol Hill and the official church reside, right? We don't have that imaginative center in our culture. But we do live in a world where in our binary system, one side has decided that they are God's gift to America and the other side is a godless horde. Just yesterday, somebody on God's side said, there will be no God if Joe Biden wins. There will be no God if Joe Biden wins. For many of us who've come out of this, this church tradition, we've experienced a faith that plays, places heavy emphasis on the heavy commands associated with this partisan co-opting. I mentioned one, pro-life. That's a heavy command. It's a non-negotiable. Pro-individual rights, which uh, has, really has to do with taxes and guns, usually. Pro-traditional family, abortion, guns, taxes, marriage. Am I missing anything? 
Do you know what I'm talking about here? If you got, if you are, if you say the right thing in those four areas, it doesn't matter what else you do. You could be the worst individual to have ever lived. You could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and people would still vote for you. Because we live in a heavy and light partisan America. Do you understand what I'm saying? What would Jesus say to those who hold the power like that in our world today? Maybe something like this. You can't make pro-life, pro-birth. If your emphasis on family doesn't include brown and black families at the border, here legally, here illegally, it isn't good news for families. Using a Supreme Court decision as a political bait and carrot to keep power without intending or acting to do anything about it for the last 30 years is holding people hostage. If you are anti-abortion but send 8,800 kids seeking asylum back across the Mexican border, citing the pandemic as an excuse, you are not pro-life. Well, what about the left, Pastor Matt? Well, Jesus has plenty to say to the left, and we'll get to that. But today, white Christian friends, there are very few politicians on the left that I'm aware of using God to justify and legitimate injustice and hold people hostage. But following Jesus has plenty to say for the godless, the Romans, the pagans, plenty to say. But, the, but, but Jesus spends a whole lot more time critiquing his group than, let me tell you what's wrong with Caesar. Let me tell you what's wrong with them barbarians who, you know, sacrifice their babies. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a 40-minute sermon on why pagan sacrifice of babies is wrong. We don't have that from Jesus. Because he has a lot in his own house to clean up. <laughs> Today, friends, we declare the good news that Jesus is what God has to say. He holds it all together in loving justice for the sake of others. And he's not calling us in this sermon to try harder but he's liberating people who are powerless and penniless who are suffering spiritual persecution by those they say as leaders he's liberating them from this heavy light game that co-ops their faith that keeps them not living in justice or love for the sake of others so let's receive the word of God Jesus as a love who holds everything together and be liberated from this game. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.